Now, we were talking last week about this matter, verse 19, as righteousness tendeth to life, so he that pursueth death, <clears throat> uh, pursueth evil, pursueth it to, its own, to his own death. We're talking about uh, what the book of Proverbs in particular, or the Old Testament as well, uh, is referring to when it's talking about life. And um, we said last week, first of all, that it's personal and psychological. And we talked a little bit about that and seeing how, how uh, in chapter uh, 3, verse 22, as an example, it talks about uh, wisdom and discretion being life to thy soul and grace to thy neck. Life to thy soul is speaking of the vitality of the whole being and uh, grace to thy neck speaks of the outward bearing. And so it's speaking of, of uh, life as personal and psychological. In uh, chapter 14, chapter 14 and verse 30, a sound heart is the life of the flesh. Again, the sound heart is speaking of the inner being. Envy is rottenness of the bones. Sound heart uh, speaks of, of life as being personal and psychological. Secondly, it is material and social. Chapter 16, verse 15, says this, In the light of the king's countenance is life. When you have the favor of the king, then uh, you have you have life in this sense. Uh, a king can do you good. If the king likes what you're doing, uh, he can make you wealthy. He can uh, uh, help you flourish. He can give you, uh, even in this day, a leader. Uh, if you've got a good relationship with him, can give you life in the sense of uh, um, allowing you to have a business permit and uh, this sort of thing that will allow you to operate. And so that's what it's speaking of there. Chapter 15 is another um, material thing. Verse 27, uh, He that is greedy for gain troubleth his own house. Um, that's not the one. Oh, yeah. But he that hateth bribes shall live. Um, again, the, the idea of... of uh, not using illegal means of gaining something gives you life in that sense. So it's, it's speaking of the material sense, material things. And then primarily, it's moral and spiritual life that's being spoken of. In chapter 10, verse 16, the labor of the righteous tendeth to life, righteousness producing life. In this case, uh, speaking, no doubt, about fellowship with God and, and uh, those sort of things. Chapter 8, verse 35, uh, says this, For whoso findeth me, that is wisdom, findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. It's speaking of, of moral and spiritual life in this sense, and synonymous with wisdom. Chapter 9, verse 6, Forsake the foolish and live. 
When you do the wise thing, then it leads to that kind of life. Uh, chapter 21 and verse 21. He that followeth after righteousness and mercy findeth life. Chapter 19, verse 23. The fear of the Lord tendeth to life. And uh, he who hath it shall abide satisfied. Chapter 15 and verse 4. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. Chapter 13, verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. Chapter 4, verse 23. 4.23, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Chapter 3, verse 18, she is a tree of life, that is wisdom again. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone uh, that retaineth her. Chapter 10, verse 11, the mouth of the righteous man is a well of life. Chapter 16, and verse 22, understanding is a wellspring of life to him that hath it. Chapter 14, verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Chapter 13, verse 14, the law of the wise is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. So, you see, the idea of life is primarily speaking of this moral and spiritual life. It's it, it, it has the idea, of course, as we saw earlier, of, of physical life and uh, even the idea of living it up, in the, to use a colloquial term that we use today, the idea of the enjoyment of life, the fullness of life. But uh, it's, it's related primarily to this moral and spiritual life. And so the righteousness, the doing the right thing in any given situation, will tend toward that idea of life. No matter how you take that life, it does mean uh, the, the fullness of what uh, we really can enjoy as far as life is concerned. Uh, one Moffat translation says, It makes for life to set one's heart on goodness. The fatal thing is to be bent on evil. The fatal thing is to be bent on evil. Now in this antithetical dishtick that is used here, you, you have a, a clear contrast brought forth. Uh, one place in the Old Testament it says, choose life. Make a clear choice. Choose life. And uh, this verse would add that if you want to choose life, the way to do it is choose righteousness. If you want to choose death, the way to do it is choose evil. And so you have the idea of pursuit now. Whereas righteousness has that tendency toward life, leading us to fulfillment and to joy and to all of the things that life are all, is all about. So he that pursueth. Pursueth is radaf. Radaf means to run after, to chase after, to follow. It's intensive action, repeated action, uh, really over and over again action that is used in this particular uh, stem. 
And uh, you, you see this word used in several places. Uh, chapter 12, verse 11. Uh, he that tilleth his land shall be satisfied with bread, but he that followeth, he that chases vain persons is void of understanding. Go over to chapter 15, verse 9. You see the use of it. The way of the wicked is an abomination of the Lord, but he, uh, but he that loveth him followeth after righteousness. It means to pursue after. Uh, it means to, to uh, uh, chase and to, to follow closely. Chapter 19, verse 7. All the brethren of the poor do hate him. How much more do his friends go far with him? He pursueth them with words, yet they are lacking to him. The idea of chasing. Chapter 28 and verse 19. 28:19. He that tilleth his land shall have plenty of bread, but he that followeth after vain persons shall have poverty enough. Now all of those are used in that intensive stem. A very, uh, uh, very uh, rigid following after. Uh, there's a there's a use of it in 13, um, tw 21, which is the uh, PL stem, the future stem, uh, where it says, "Poverty and shame shall be to him that refuseth instruction, but he that regardeth reproof shall." Excuse me. Verse 21, I got the wrong verse. I was looking desperately there, and I couldn't find it. Verse 21, evil pursueth sinners. Here's, here you have the other way around, where the evil is pursuing. Uh, it's a future stem, but it's the same basic idea. It doesn't have the intensive stem that it does in the other, but it does have the idea of chasing or running down. This is the, the gist of it. Uh, over in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 4. This word, um, incidentally, was used in a secular sense to pursue like a hound after, after a prey or uh, to be a, uh, to, to chase like a, like a conquering army will chase the enemy and run them into the ground. If, you, if you've ever worked with a hound, uh, chasing coon or uh, 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 using, uh, even, even going after uh, birds, you see some of this, but especially uh, when you're, when you're uh, trying to run an animal down, you know, those hounds will run them, literally run them into the ground. And uh, uh, it's, it's, it's an aggressive action. Uh, the, the, uh, the dogs are, the bloodhounds are trained in such a way, they pick up a scent and they'll follow that and follow it. And they, they actually, um, if a dog can look disappointed, a hound looks disappointed if he ever loses that scent. He wants to chase that animal to the very end and tree the coon or uh, chase the rabbit down to the, uh, to the place that the rabbit has no strength left. And they actually, uh, they actually can run them into the ground. This is what the word means. If you've ever had anything to do with a, uh, with a military scheme, uh, you know that, that uh, the way warfare used to be on the field of battle instead of the, uh, the jungle and uh, all of that sort of thing, 
uh, when a when a conquering army would would defeat the enemy, um, they would they would go on the run, and they would they would they would turn uh, turn around and begin to to retreat. And when they started retreating, then the invading army would come, and they would literally run after them, chasing them, doing everything they could to uh, to annihilate the enemy. That's a way that the great wars of uh, Napoleon and the great wars of Alexander the Great, as well as the great wars that are recorded in Scripture, were fought. When there was victory, there was a shout of victory, and there was a chasing after the foe. This is the word that's used here. Now in Judges uh, chapter 4, verse 16, it says, But Barak pursued after the chariots. There's the word. Pursued after the chariots and after the hosts unto Heresheth of the nations. And the host of Sisera fell with the edge of the sword. And there was not a man left. Can't you just see this battle going on for a period of time? And then all of a sudden, the pendulum swings the way of Barak and his troops. And there's a shout of victory as the enemy begins to retreat. And they chase them. They run them into the ground. Second Samuel chapter uh, 20. Second Samuel. Chapter 20, and verse 10. This is now Joab. But Amasa took no heed to the sword that was in Joab's hand, so he smote him with it in the fifth rib and shed out his inward parts. That's pretty uh, clear what that means to the ground and struck him not again, and he died. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bitri. They pursued him. They chased him down. They, they, they were like a, like a bloodhound on the trail of the rabbit, conquering. Now, that's the word that's used here. If you, if you just... Uh, think of this for a moment. Um, the uh, Solomon is, has, a, has a, a very dramatic verbal picture of what's going on here. The, the person who does the thing that is right is not seen as pursuing it here, although it wouldn't be a bad idea to pursue righteousness. There's nothing wrong with that concept. But he's setting a tremendous, con uh, tremendous contrast here. You do righteousness. Righteousness, the opportunity of doing the right thing is all around you. All you have to do is do it. You don't have to, you don't have to look in far off places. I wonder how I could do something right today. See? But evil is such a thing that it hides in the shadows. You have to chase after it. You have to run after it. If you run after it, it's going to kill you. That's all there is to it. You know so often that, that uh, it, is, it is the lure that is involved. It's, it's not something that's out front. It's something that, that, that Satan wants to lure you into. He wants you to chase evil. He wants you to go into that den of iniquity, that place. I, I was amazed the first time I ever walked down, uh, what is it, uh, um, is it Beach Avenue in San Francisco, that very uh, 
I don't know. Any, yeah. <laughs> yeah, who, who could admit it? Well, you, you all know what I mean, though, I'm sure. <laughs> In any event, I walked down the street there one day, uh, years ago, when we, my brother-in-law uh, was, was going to introduce me to San Francisco, and he took me down that street. I couldn't believe it. Here are these guys standing out there trying to drag you into those places. And it was bad enough that your curiosity is interested, you know. But here these, here these guys are. Come on, come on in, come on in, come on in. And uh, there's, there, is a, there is a lure. Chase after it. Go after it. This is good. Grab all the gusto you can. You've got to chase this and chase that and chase the other thing. You see, there is a, there is a pursuing of evil that ultimately is going to end in death. There's a way that seems right unto a man, the end thereof are the ways of death. It may seem all right to do it, but it's going to lead to death. But in this case, he is saying, don't pursue Ra. Now remember, the root Ra means wrong. And uh, because of our English use on the matter of wickedness, uh, and the, the really... A terrible connotation that there is in the word wickedness or evil even as we think of it something sinister something really bad you know people talk for instance about a white lie a white lie and they'll the, the white lie you see in their mind is not as evil as a real black lie so the white lie and the gray lie and the black lie and all of the rest. And we have a standard in our mind, sort of a curve on which we grade lying. The thing that happens is if you study Scripture, you'll find out all lies are wrong. Now that's just an obvious statement. But when God uses the word wicked or the word that's translated wicked or evil in our English Bibles, it is this word raw. And raw can be be ra ah it can be ra sha it can be intensified in various ways to show degrees of evil but the fact is that when we when we use evil in its raw form it's simply wrong as opposed to right and there is a right and wrong remember that one of the duties that you have as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is to mature to the place that you are able to discern both right and wrong. Remember that passage in Hebrews when considering the amount of time that you've been a believer? You ought to be teaching others. You yourself need to be taught the ABCs of the gospel. But he that is mature he that takes the, or uh, excuse me, you'd be taught the ABCs and given the milk of the word. And then it says, but he that is mature taketh strong meat and is able by reason of use, by applying the word of God daily in his life, by reason of use can discern between good and evil, between raw and sadak. Be, that's, of course, the Old Testament words. I'm quoting the New Testament. But the idea is that you have, you have a right and a wrong in any given situation. 
And God makes obvious to you the right. If you'll just take it, it's there. Instead, Satan has a tremendous, a tremendous lure. Now, I, I don't know whether I should advertise this or not, uh, because I haven't seen it. Nobody here has. But uh, Walt Disney's coming out with a new film this summer. Ticket buyers are pretty good. It's going to be a, a fantasy um, and going to be really, a, 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 the guy that uh, produced it is a believer in Jesus Christ. And writ it's written in the style of the C.S. Lewis uh, allegory type thing, sort of like Pilgrim's Progress and this sort of thing. But one of the things, it's, it's primarily for children, but uh, the idea is that a carnival comes to town, all right? And uh, the carnival comes to town, and this sinister character tries to get people to participate in the wares of the carnival, but tries to do it without uh, telling them what the long-range consequences of their action is. You recognize the plot? Of course, it's the whole classic picture that you have throughout Scripture. And it's a subtle attempt, maybe too subtle. I haven't seen it yet. I don't know. I don't know how forward it will be. But the point is, at least it's an attempt. They're trying to, uh, they're trying to have another chariots of fire. Uh, they found out that the evangelical ticket buyers are pretty good. And uh, so they're trying to do that. Well, I'll, it remains to be seen whether the, the, uh, the, the film gets that, that idea off the ground or not. But what I'm saying is that that idea is precisely what the Scripture is teaching us repeatedly. Satan constantly wants you to follow and not understand the consequences. Why aren't young people supposed to envy the wicked because of their end how do you teach young people not to envy the wicked show them the end of evil tell you if your kid wants to smoke just take him to a cancer ward where they've got their throats cut out and their lungs cut out and they're sitting there breathing on machines and uh, say this is the end of that habit now this is, you, you, you want to end up here? Fine, go ahead. You know? I think every child should have a chance to spend a night in jail. Not because uh, he's done anything worthy of imprisonment, but because that's where he's going to end up if he keeps picking up candy bars in the grocery store. I'll never forget seeing a dragnet one time where a father pulled his boy into that police station and talked to old Joe Friday and all he wanted was the facts but he, he said I want you to take my boy and show him what prison's like because he's going to end up there and he might as well get used to it boy that kid saw it you know and oh no way did he want to go there they're glib about it at first but I'll tell you Evil has its consequences. You can't get away with sin. And so even the mildest wrong is wrong. All right? And we live in a day of relativism today. We understand what, what they're trying to do to us. They're trying to get us to think 
that if it's just a little bit bad, it's really just sort of uh, uh, still in the righteous category. That righteousness, righteousness and evil sort of overlap. And there is this area of wrong in here that isn't really wrong. See? And if you can, if you can live in this territory, then you're not going to have any problem. Now, folks, it's not true. God has made a clear distinction. There is a standard, and His Word presents that standard. Right and wrong. And men like to play with this. I heard, in the, I heard on the uh, radio the other day, they said that, that uh, Moses came uh, down from the mountain and um, uh, had the Ten Commandments. And the uh, people said, oh, no, ten of them? Moses, go back and see if you can't renegotiate. So he came back after a time in the mountain. And uh, he said, uh, came back down and he said to the people, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Said, well, what's the good news? The good news is God's reduced it to five. What's the bad news? Adultery's still wrong. I see, man would like to think that God could be manipulated that way. They want to send they want to send Moses back for a second opinion. And what's more, some of their pet little sins, they are hoping that God will eliminate and say that's all right. And you know the tragedy of our day is that that that, that there are people, many people who actually believe that if you sin long enough and it becomes commonplace among us, that God will change his mind. That it's no longer wrong. There was no doubt in anybody's mind that sodomy was wrong. Twenty years ago, everybody, even the people that performed the, the unnatural act, were, were convinced it was wrong. But guess what? They're no longer convinced it's wrong. And a lot of society is no longer convinced it's wrong. And, you know, the National Council of Churches just went through a real hassle because they wanted to accept the homosexual churches into the National Council. It was a very close vote. But it was, it was uh, there were a few that had enough morality left in them that they refused to vote positively to allow them to be a part of the thing. I, I have heard this guy, you know, the guy that began the Metropolitan Churches um, is a graduate of Moody Bible Institute and is, from the theological viewpoint, is evangelical. But you know the thing about that man is is that he practiced sin for many many years secretly and until he was able to justify it in his own mind. And he really honestly believes that God has changed his mind about that sin. Now he's convinced himself of that. But guess what? God's not going to change his mind. 
God is just going to see the increase of wickedness in a society until a society is ripe for judgment. And God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah when they were ripe for judgment. One of the most amazing things to me in all of the scriptures, honestly, one of the most amazing things is to discover that God actually allowed the people of Israel 400 years in slavery so that God could give 400 years more of grace to the Canaanites. That's what God said to Abraham. He says, your people will be in Egypt for a period of time until the iniquity of the Amorites is full. God says, I'm not going to judge them until they're ready. When they're ready for judgment, you know, God will let the cup of iniquity fill and fill and fill, giving man a chance because he's a God of grace. But when the cup is full, God will destroy them. And therefore, don't think you can play with wrong, even the smallest wrong. If there is something in your life that is wrong and you know it's wrong, be done with it. In the power of God's Holy Spirit, shed it from your back. Don't allow it to be a part of your life at all. Now, the idea here then is this, that as righteousness tend to the life, he that pursueth evil pursues it to his own death. The pursuit, the second pursuit, isn't in the original. It's just implied there. Now, the idea here then is this, that as righteousness tend to the life, he that pursueth evil pursues it to his own death. The pursuit, the second pursuit, isn't in the original. It's just implied there. Maveth, which can be natural death, but is used a lot in terms of violent death. Did you know that 500 people every hour die? It is not, it is not too... <coughs> It is not too, uh, uh, would not be too, too unusual if one person in this room died this week. Any volunteers? <laughs> now, you're, you, may, you may live, you may die. There are no guarantees. But the person who lives an evil life, in that very general sense, will tend toward death. The idea of death and dying is used about 40 times in the book of Proverbs. In about a dozen places, it's the word Sheol is used, or the place of the dead. Uh, there are two places where the word Abaddon, which means destruction, is used, and twice where the word uh, the pit is used, chapter 1, verse 12, and chapter 28, verse 17, Incidentally, all of these verses will be in your notes when you get notes on this verse. And uh, Rethem, or what is called the shades, is another expression that is used three times in the book of Proverbs. Um, but most of these words, you know, a dozen, dozen places where Sheol is used, Abaddon twice, the pit twice, uh, uh, Rethem three times, and uh, that covers almost all of those 40, those words are used not to speak of the act of physically dying, 
but rather to go beyond, to go beyond in the matter of death. Death does not end it all. It is, when we talk about death, we're not talking merely about physical death, but spiritual death as well. Chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, his own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be held with the cords of his sin. He shall die without instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. The idea there has more to do with, with the consequences after a person has died. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. And I'll tell you, these verses uh, just bring home the truth of uh, the, the fact that we ought to pursue life rather than death. Um, it, it talks uh, about the hold not correction from the child. For if thou beatest him with a rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with a rod and shalt deliver his soul from Sheol, the place of the dead. The implication is you'll save him from judgment. Sheol, though it speaks of the grave, it speaks of, of, of death as we think of it in a physical sense, it carries beyond that because it has to do with judgment. And so there, there are verses after verses after verses in the book of Proverbs that deal with this whole subject of life and death. Some wicked men shorten life consciously and they, they uh, uh, sin and they, and they do the things that they shouldn't and the result is that, they, that it leads toward death. The college campus, of course, is, is the, uh, um, the place of free speech and free love and free this and free that. And, and the advocates of, of the new morality are, are riddling our campuses today. And, and you would think, you know, these young people have, have heard the, what is it, Budweiser ad or whatever. They've gone after all the gusto they could. You would think that with with their youth and with all of the all of the dreams that they have for the future, all of the great future ahead of them, you would think that that they would be uh, uh, almost immune from death. But you know, the number two cause for death among college students is suicide. Number one, death is accidents, primarily automobile accidents, primarily drunk driving accidents, right? So you have number one, number two, both a violent kind of death. And these kids have life by the tail. They're the kids that laugh and scream and and joke and all of the rest at these big parties they throw, you know, the, the, the keggers. They throw the big party and everybody's happy and everybody's telling everybody how happy they are. And on the outside, they appear to be until they get to their room and they begin to think of what a waste their life is. And they blow their brains out. See, the tragedy is that it's sneaking down the age. The increase of suicides in the junior high area 
is unbelievable. And a chunk of them in the high school area as well. Leading cause of death among young people. Suicide. One analyst said this, today, much more than 20 years ago, people are more egocentric more interested in their own gratifications and satisfactions. They don't want to sacrifice. Before they are willing to sacrifice too much, perhaps. Be, excuse me, before they were willing to sacrifice too much, perhaps. Now it's too little. Today there is a sense that anything that doesn't do things for them is resented. Children are seen as a hardship more and more and parents are not finding the children as a source of joy or pleasure. A lot of kids sense that they are the source of their parents' unhappiness. They sense that their parents feel trapped by marriage and that they are the li uh, they are the uh, lid on the trap. Out of the tragic disaffection has come the rising number of young people who are drawn to suicide because deadness has been their only security for a lifetime. Tragic, isn't it? There's an article uh, which I'm receiving in the mail. Uh, it's been referred to in several newspapers and uh, I'm getting a copy of it, but I don't have it available yet. It talks about the child of the future. Have you heard about this? The child of the future. You will not believe what they are predicting for the child of the future. Unbelievable. But one of the things is, they said virtually no, virtually no children will have one parent, I mean, one mother and one father, virtually none. Boy, I hope they're wrong. But they say that probably by the time they grow up and it's time for them to leave home, they will have had several, either stepfathers or stepmothers, or both. And that will be, that will be the child of the future. Now, that's only one aspect of it. There are a lot of other crazy things, like robots, uh, doing all the work and all of the rest, push-button age, some of those things. But the tragedy is that that's the way we're headed, folks. That's the way we're headed. But I'll tell you now, right now, young people are not going to find satisfaction in that kind of a circumstance. They're going to tend toward death. Freud spoke of two great forces or basic instincts. You've all heard this. He had the idea of Thanatos, which is the death wish, and Eros, which was the life wish. Just two forces within them. And uh, there, are many, there are many psychologists that because of their Freudian orientation say that the, the uh, death wish is the strongest of the two. No wonder four times, there's four times the suicide rate among the psychiatrists than there is 
among any other profession, right? The Freud's cluster of 12, the 12 men that Freud drew around him, seven of them committed suicide, right? And uh, they discovered that rich people, get this now, rich people commit suicide more often than poor people. And they discovered that powerful people commit suicide at an alarming rate. Hannibal, uh, who conquered Rome, had it made. What, a, what an honor, brought the elephants over the Alps, conquered Rome, did what no one else could ever believe to doing, took down the legs of iron. Van Gogh was a success in every sense of the word. Uh, there are other names, uh, Freddie Milk, uh, uh, Marilyn Monroe, Ernest Hemingway, uh, to say nothing of a jumble of others, they all committed suicide. And most of them, most of these people did not commit suicide in their old age when, when they were feeble and no, their faculties were going and they, and they were losing uh, their ability to do what they had done before. Most of them committed suicide at, at a height of their career. Why? Well, Claus Norman, the son of novelist Thomas Norman, said, I have lost more friends through suicide than through diseases, crimes, or accidents. So some forfeit life consciously by taking their life. Some wicked men forfeit life subconsciously. They wouldn't consciously choose death, yet they choose a lifestyle that tends to shorten life. They indulge in habits and excesses that tend to hasten death. They call it, uh, some people call it a suicide on the installment plan. They don't have the courage to put the gun to their head. So they take pills. They know that it's going to lead ultimately to death. And... Uh, they, they get lung cancer from cigarettes and sclerosis of the liver from alcohol. They get, get in the drunk driving syndrome. The 19, in the 1950s, the beatnik generation, the bearded followers of Satare, uh, Greenwich Village, Haight-Ashbury was their sanctuary on each coast, you know. A few years ago, a study was made of 51 hardcore members of the beatnik generation to see what happened to them. Some were dead. Some had returned to a square life. Some were living in some kind of a bohemian condition. Some were drifting around cities like zombies, flinching and twitching and, and uh, blank-faced basket cases, really. But the vast majority of the thousands of young people that made up the beatnik movement in this very intense study, the vast majority of them were in mental institutions. Charles Bridges says, excessive worldliness wears out the springs of life. 
Do you understand this? We were not made to do wickedness. You got a car out here. I just suggest an experiment. Not to the boys, just to the men. <laughs> Put water in your gas tank and see how far you get. I dare you. You say, well, that's stupid. A car wasn't made to run on water. An internal combustion engine requires something that can combust. I've got a Ford. It combusts all the time. <laughs> but listen, that car was not made to run on water or to run on diesel, if it's not a diesel engine, or to run on sugar or uh, sugar water or whatever. It wasn't made to run that way. Therefore, when you try to use that, it won't run right. Am I right? Now, you understand it with cars. Well, I don't understand it with you. God made you for himself to glorify him. Man is only man as God intended for man to be when man is walking with God. Man is only living within the confines of his, of his uh, ability when man is doing the right thing. God never intended that you live wrongly. When he designed Adam and Eve, he designed them perfectly. And when they sinned, they brought death on the race. The continuation of sin, the perpetuation of Adam's uh, uh, sin and Satan's lie will bring you to death. And it may be by inches. You may say, oh, well, I, I just want to do this. All right? That may take longer to destroy you than that. A person can uh, go out and begin to shoot up with heroin. And uh, he can probably figure that he can do that for at the maximum about four or five years. And he's going to be dead. Okay? All right? So, you know, if you want it quick, then you shoot up with heroin. But if you want it full, well, then you try something else. Maybe just a little bit of immorality. Might not kill you tomorrow. That was the big lie of Satan. When God said, you eat of that tree, you're going to die, Satan implied... You won't drop dead. Eve takes this piece of fruit, which I don't believe was an apple at all, and she bites into it. Mmm, it's good. And she didn't die on the first bite. So she took another and another, and she ate the whole fruit and then gave to Adam and then patted herself on the back and said, See, I didn't drop dead. The thing she didn't understand is death is not always immediate. But what she did was terminal. The immediate result was a death spiritually. No fellowship with God. The physical death took some time. But it came. And I believe with all my heart that this, this is a day where people need to understand this truth. You can't get away with sin. You can't. And you say, I'll sin a little. You're going to die a little. 
and one sin leads to another so that before long you find you have worn out the springs of life. So some forfeit life consciously and some forfeit life subconsciously. And there are some wicked men who forfeit life unconsciously. They don't know about the link between sin and an early grave. No one ever told them. Tragic if you don't scare your children to death with that message. One of the things about this Disney film was the producer said, I hope we can scare children to death as to the awful consequences of sin. I'll tell you something, folks. If you're fathers, you have a responsibility to let your children know the consequences of sin. Sin is no respecter of persons. The consequences are not, are not going to be nullified just because they didn't know. And there are a lot of things in life that if a person, if a, a person may not, honestly, may not know that those things are going to lead to death. They may not know that they're going to put them in an early grave. They may not know the consequences, but the consequences are still sure. And what you have to, what you have to face in this day and age is this. There is so much deception out there. There are so many lies being told. The whole drug culture is a lie. It's a lie. It's an illusion. They say, take this, you'll feel good. Take this, it'll kill you. Learn it. Understand it. You young men, tell you. We see these people dying, dying by inches. Day after day after day. Why? Because. Because of the fact that people will, will take that garbage up to no good. Oh, but this drug won't hurt you. Nah, this is no problem. You know, they, there was such a lobby for marijuana. The idea that marijuana really wasn't that bad. Really, it was good for you. And really, it, it wasn't going to hurt anybody. No, it wasn't habit-forming and all of this kind of stuff. I'll tell you something. Marijuana is killing people. And they're dying by inches, and a lot of them don't even know it. Their brains are turning to putty as a result of this, this dreadful drug that, that nice people, quote, end quote, have tried to legalize marijuana. Don't want to get marijuana off the streets. It's, it's, it's not worth it. It's not going to hurt anybody anyway. The result is that young people are using it all over our community. They don't realize it's going to kill them. When you have a lifestyle that is involved in wrong, it's going to tend toward death. You're on a road, just as clear as can be. You're on a road. And I'll tell you something. I always thought, Every illustration I ever saw of the, bro the, the broad and the narrow way, every illustration I ever saw looked kind of like this. 
Here's the straight and narrow leading to life. And here's leading to death. Guess what? That's not right. You look at it carefully and you realize it's like this. The narrow road is a line, a line of people coming single file away from death to life. And there's the masses of people going this way. And why this is such a difficult way to go is because you're always going against the stream. You ever, here's a fatal thing to do. Go to a, go to a 49er game sometime on Monday. On Monday, of course, when they have a Monday night game, all right? You go to a 49er game and uh, leave your binoculars down in your seat and uh, run up and be the first at the door and then remember your binoculars and try to go back and get them. Now that is suicide, all right? There are no binoculars in the world worth trying to go through that crowd backwards. You'll be killed. You'll be stampeded. That's what this is. And remember what it says? There are few that find this way. Few. Just a few. And there are many that find this way. A broad way, a broad road that leads to death. And everybody headed down that way. And here comes the other guy, and he's fighting upstream to life against the crowd. Will you choose life? Or will you choose death? You young people here today, I challenge you with everything I've got. Choose life. You'll never be sorry. You were never made to commit evil. You were designed to do righteousness. And every bit of evil you do destroys you a little bit. And that has, that's only the beginning. Because the man who chooses evil and goes his own way will also ultimately face the judgment of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you tell us these things so very clearly. Right now, Lord, I just would pray that by your grace, you would make us constantly aware of the awful consequences of evil. Help us to choose life. Help us to live righteous lives today. There are going to be opportunities, Lord, for us to make a clear choice at school, at work, even at our home, where we could do the right thing or the wrong thing. Help us to have sense enough to realize that if we do the wrong thing, we die a little. But if we want to live, we'll do the right thing. Grant that we pray in Jesus' name.